Do take up your your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Now in the middle of a a series in in Oxford, and so a little bit of scene setting so far in Acts is needed. Um, Jesus has told his disciples that they will go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth with the good news about him. And so they have preached that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they have been opposed. They've been commanded to, to silence. As we'll see, unsurprisingly, they have not kept silent, but have gone on preaching. But if there's opposition outside, the of chapter 5, we, we see this opposition and, uh, and problems and division inside, as Ananias and Sapphira are brought under God's judgment for, for lying to the church and so to the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 12, as it were, we, we go back from, from the internal problems to, to the external. The question now still hanging over the church, what will happen um, given that they have been commanded not to preach and yet intend to go on doing so? We pick up at Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done by the pe- among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick onto the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, And they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. When the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. When we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem of your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. 
And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Fudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. He might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Why is the church, I guess the Christian faith and and the gospel around which it's gathered, why is it so controversial? I I mean, it really is. You you can imagine a a meeting in the 1980s of of the murder dean of of Osama bin Laden and and co. and the invading Soviet atheists. And they might not agree on much, but they they agree on this. We, We don't like Christians. There might not be much they have in common, but they can be agreed that Christians are a problem. I mean, here in Acts 5, we see that the Jewish council at one, the Sanhedrin. Later in Acts, in Acts 23, we will literally see them having a fist fight over a theological question of the resurrection from the dead. And yet here they can find some kind of consensus and unity. may not know much, but we know that Peter and co. have to be silenced. This teaching must stop. You might think that their opposition is that the church is hypocritical. We know, if we're reading through Acts, we've we've just heard that that, that there are problems in the church. That Ananias and Sapphira have been struck dead for, for lying to God, to the apostles, to the Holy Spirit. It might be that the Sanhedrin might have said, well, they're as bad as everyone else. That they're a dangerous cult. But that's not the picture here. The church is not controversial. It's not opposed, but because it's divided against itself or it's hypocritical. We're told in those opening verses in 12 to 16 that I read that the church is going from strength to strength, performing miracles esteemed by all the people. And yet, this moment when they're held in in high esteem by all, they they seem to be hated all the more. What is it that's going on? All all the more when you see that distinction between those in in power and the ordinary people, the ordinary people who esteem, and those in power who seek to oppose. I guess they're a recurrent pattern. It's an interesting thing that, that, that most people, in fact, the vast majority of people in this country know at least one Christian who they like. And more than that, 
the general picture of religion is often positive. I know that in, in the media, in any kind of film or, or TV program or book, there's, there's two Christians who appear. There's the kind of the evil Christian, who is a fundamentalist and hates people and actually turns out they're hypocritically murdering people sort of um, when no one's looking. But there's also the, the nice Christian, who's just a bit un, unworldly and they're kind and, and they work in, in the soup kitchen. And people would say of them, I, I wish I had your faith, but the Ned Flanders of this world, if you will, those who know the Simpsons. Many people seem to, to, to like Christians. But when faced with the, the real thing, many Christians would find themselves esteemed. And yet, again and again, we, we find the church, particularly by those in, in authority and power, opposed. The pattern of Acts 5, esteemed by the people, opposed by, by those in power. And this passage invites us to, to, to step, as it were, into the shoes of, of these persecutors. It's a telling thing that, that Luke, who wrote Acts, tells us so much about why they did the things they did. He, he seems to be party to conversations that happen behind closed doors. It's almost as if someone switched sides. I'll give you a clue. Um, Gamaliel had a friend, a, a student called Saul, who would later be Paul. That might be the source. I, I can't preach that as truth. But, but, but Luke claims huge insight. Why, why tell us all these things that these wicked men did in opposing the church? Why, why put us in their shoes and, and get us to understand their motives? Clearly, God wants us to see something here that will help us to persevere. Is it simply a matter of saying, well, don't be like them? I hope most of us are not going to go out and, and use what power we have to, to zealously persecute the church like the, the, the men do here. If you aren't into that, I'm glad you're here to hear the Bible taught. But that's not going to be the primary application to us. Don't be like the Sanhedrin. That There must be more going on than that. After we, we stand, as it were, with, with Peter and the church against these men who oppose and, and something is being told to us about what it's going to be like to, to live as a Christian. And behind it all, I guess, is this we're going to get an idea of, of what to expect. Of, of what the Christian life might be like in terms of opposition to the church. Thankfully, our lives are not always like the lives of Peter and the Apostles in this moment and this time. And yet there is something here to, to, to learn about the nature of, of evangelism, but particularly the nature of, of standing firm and keeping going. I'll see that in, 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 I guess, two big headings. And the first is, what motivates persecution? What motivates persecution? Again, Luke claims some, some pretty privileged access to, to the corridors of power. He knows why the Sanhedrin really persecuted the church. I, I'm guessing they were not wandering around saying, by the way, we're, pragmati we're a pragmatic hypocrites who just want to maintain our power. And yet Luke shows us that is what is going on. He claims to know why they were really persecuting the church. And he takes the time to, to show us, to show us what mo motivates, what, what motivates their opposition, their persecution. Jealousy is one thing. 
It's explicit, isn't it, in verse 17. They were filled, the, the, the high priest and, and his party were filled with jealousy. Didn't look at the church and, and see its immorality or its weakness. After all, I guess if a church had been a, a go-nowhere flash in the pan that they expected to, to fold within the next couple of months, they would have left it alone. It, it's not that the, the weakness of the church or, or the immoral danger it presents that, that causes them to go after it, but, but its strength. It, it's the fact that they are esteemed by the people, that they are growing, that, that power is at work in the church which I guess they must know at some level is, is from God. Gamaliel can at, at least countenance the possibility that, that they're wrong. They've got a pr- pretty good idea that the church is what it claims to be. The things the church has became were not done in a corner. The death and, and resurrection of Jesus had had happened in the city. Pentecost, the Spirit poured out. Thousands turning to Christ. Miracles day by day. It's not they looked at the church and said, this is clearly not true. And so we must get rid of these false notions about this man, Jesus. But rather they must have realized at some level that it was true. But but more than that, they realized that it was winning. And they were jealous. They, they saw that the people who were, who were flooding to the temple courts and putting their trust in, in Jesus as theirs, as stolen from them, as their rightful possession to, to command and order about it and use in their purposes. They saw that, that the apostles won a, a hearing and were doing things that they could not do themselves. They ultimately saw that they had a, a hearing with God that they didn't have themselves. Uh, and rather than ask themselves the question, are we the, the bad guys? Should, should we be listening to them? They instead try to eliminate that of which they are jealous. To, to re-establish their, their power by force. What is the practical implication of that for us? Because jealousy is going to be, I guess, a a, a motive that that might motivate opposition to to the church. I think it puts to death the underlying assumption that I have that if I could just get it right and be more successful, I I wouldn't be opposed. If I could just be a good enough Christian or we could be a good enough church that, that people would leave us alone. Or would even accept that, that we're right. But, but the, the more we get right, perhaps, not always, but perhaps, the, the more flack we get. Again, as we look at, at other Christians who receive flack, the temptation, I guess, is to, is to think, well, they must have done something wrong. They, they must have been too aggressive, or, or they must have put their head above the parapet and not been as wise or as careful as they should have been. But maybe the opposition has come because they were doing right. Maybe we're sinners. 
the opposition had come their way because they were doing wrong and they, and they were being unnecessarily offensive. But, but, but there's no proof in the fact that we're opposed that we've done wrong. Because opposition can be motivated by jealousy. Our, our business is to proclaim Christ, that people might be one to his kingdom, that people might put their trust in him. And in doing so, they'll be turning their back on, on, on other masters and other lords. And those other masters and other lords, that those families or tribes or, or governments or, or nations and powers will be jealous and will push back. As the church expands, we should expect opposition to it to expand. might not sound like a, 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 an encouraging note to strike, but it is an encouragement to us that we're not getting it wrong if we face opposition. Because persecution opposition is motivated by, by jealousy. It's motivated again by pragmatism. There's a strong theme of this running through the, the whole of the, the passage. After all, the, the, the council face a, a real practical problem. They put Jesus to death through the means of, of Pilate, but, but they had staked their authority on that act. They had pulled rank in a way that at the time had seemed to them pretty cost-free. Putting to death this one who, who threatened their authority in, in, in their own city. The people had wanted Jesus dead. And so far from creating a problem for them, it had, it had reinforced that the power and authority that they had. But, but now the tide had turned. Not just because of the claim of the resurrection, but because the people ha- had turned. The people had, had turned... And now, it was no longer such a great badge of honour to have been the ones who put Jesus to death. We see it again and again in, in this passage, how the, the soldiers then bring the apostles from the prison, or then to arrest them in the temple courts, um, lest they get stoned to death. How the council accused the apostles of having brought the blood of Jesus upon their head, and of having filled the, the city with their teaching such that there might be a rebellion against them. But you see, through all of this, the, the one question they never ask is, is it true? Did, did we put to death God's anointed king? Is there, as these men claim, forgiveness nonetheless in his name if we repent and turn to God and turn to him is contrary to to what we thought Jesus in fact the leader and saviour of his people as Peter and the others declare it all leads that great pragmatic advice of, of Gamaliel at the end let's just leave him alone and see what happens after all you remember Phoebus and and Judas and others back in the past, well, the moment that they died, that their followers just scattered to the winds and it all came to nothing. Maybe they'll just disappear. One more new religious movement in history that, that never really came to anything. Maybe they won't. 
unless we give too, too much credit to Gamaliel, he may get slightly more of what's going on than the others, but firstly, he was, of course, wrong, and the church is still here. But, but, but more than that, do you see, he, he hardly takes the possibility they might be opposing God seriously. If he really thought the possibility, I, I don't think just let's hang around and, and see if we're cursed by God is, is a great plan. But, but, but more than that, that test has already been run. They, they've killed the leader. They've done what happened to these men in the past. And, and far, from, far from scattering, that's when the church is, has grown. The evidence is there, but they don't want to look at it. Their concerns are purely pragmatic. We should be aware that as we speak of, of Christ and are opposed, that, that often the questions we're asking are fundamentally different. We proclaim Christ, we proclaim his death and resurrection, but, but, but what is being asked in response? What, what will work for me? What will maintain the, the status quo? Again, that challenge, this idea that if we could just get it clear, we we would win the argument. If I could just be clear enough about the evidence that they would leave me alone or accept Jesus. But the assumption is that that we're speaking to people who are asking the same questions we are, with the same concern for the truth, who, who are giving it a fair hearing. The apostles find that is very much not the case with those to whom they speak. And ultimately what motivates this, this persecution? Well, well it's hypocrisy and I guess it's itself. Whatever their professed interest in, in the truth, the ultimate driving motivation behind what those in authority do is maintaining their own position and power. It is ultimately them, themselves. It's not a very attractive picture. We often rightly want to give people the the benefit of the doubt. I'm not saying we should go out and and anyone who disagrees with us must be some maximally wicked, hypocritical, pragmatic persecutor. Again, many of the people, even those outside the church, esteem the apostles in the church. That they value and and recognize them and and hundreds and, and, and thousands are coming to trust in Christ. But, but there are some, there are some, particularly those who have much to, to lose, if the church is right, who, who motivated by, by pragmatism will not be convinced, but by the best living or, or the clearest theological thinking. It's not about looking down on people, it's just about being realistic. There is still the question of how to respond, and it's notable that the, the apostles here are polite. They're polite. They state the facts. Yes, you you put Jesus to to death. But but they recognize authority and respect it. But but more, knowing the underlying motivation of persecution, we should know that that it's not our job to to solve it. I'm mission-orientated, not just in terms of evangelism, in terms of wanting to be sort of task-orientated, to to solve the problems I face, to to fix it. And so I see opposition and think, if I could just do a bit better, I could make it go away and fix it. 
the church here find it's not their job to, to fix the opposition of those in authority. Yes, they speak the truth to them. But, but because the motivation is, is, is not a disagreement about the evidence, about who Jesus is and what he's done, but is the desire to protect their position, which is impossible while putting their trust in Jesus, it's a problem that they, humanly speaking, can't solve. No. Sometimes as we face opposition, we cannot solve the opposition that we face. All we can do is persevere and go about God's work, which is the second big heading here. What motivates perseverance? What will keep us going? If there's opposition that's, that's motivated in such a way that we, we can't argue it away or, or, or live it away, how can we press on through it? Many of the people we hear in verse 13 um, kept their heads down. They dared not join them openly. And even there, there's a sense that that's not even a, a, a problem. But the apostles here do persevere. It's a remarkable thing that they're, that they're, they're, they're locked up and told to stop preaching Christ. Released miraculously and they're preaching Christ. They're told by the council not to preach Christ. And then lest again you think Gamaliel was, was being kind, that they're beaten. Hardly a sense of, or leave them alone. They, they beat them and release them. And what they do, they, they preach Christ. They go straight back to the temple courts and do exactly what they've been told not to do. What keeps them going? If they had anything of the same sense of, uh, 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 of self-importance or pragmatism, or even just simple jealousy of the power of those against them, that, that their opposers have, they, they would have done nothing. They would have just listened. And, and perhaps maybe for a couple of weeks or months, just until the dust had, had settled, keep, keep their heads down. Yet at every stage, they go on doing what they've been doing. What motivates them? Well, well firstly, it's, it's obedience. They're servants. If the concern of their persecutors is themselves, that the concern of, of the church, of the apostles, is God and what he wants. Verse 29 is in many ways the heart of the passage. Faced here at this moment of great crisis, having been released miraculously from prison, they stand before the council, the religious leaders of, of the nation, and are told not to preach in Jesus' name, though the council cannot bring themselves to even say the name Jesus. Do not preach this man or this teaching. The answer of Peter and the Apostle in verse 29 is, is simple. We must obey God rather than men. Their concern is, is not to preserve themselves or, or to grow the church, though that's the effect, but to obey God. They know what God wants. And in Jesus, they, they see God's authority and actually over the church. They know what they have to do, and so they do it. Sometimes people worry about the question, at what stage would you be willing to disobey the government or, or your employer or even a, a, a parent who was commanding you to do contrary to what God said? In some ways, I think that's actually the wrong question. It's not, not a 
completely ridiculous question, but it's not the, the question here. You see, there's nothing here of, of a, a, a lazy kind of countercultural rejection of authority. The apostles respect the authority of, of those to, to whom they're speaking and who are speaking to them. They, they take the request seriously. It's not dismissed out of hand. Well, you're wicked men. We don't care what you say. Even as they speak of, of these men's execution of Jesus, they, they, they do so as merely a statement of fact and, and not full of, of rage and, and vitriol and anger. These are wicked men to whom they speak, but, but they don't take that as an excuse to revile them or disobey them. Now, it's not that the negative that, that drives them, but the positive. We must obey God. It's not your, your failures that mean we don't have to obey you. Indeed, all things being equal, it might be that, that your authority was, was important. We would obey. But we must obey God. And however high we place your authority, his is far higher. If he says to do it, we must do it. So much of the debates now about various ethical and cultural issues becomes about p- picking apart those who are, are opposing us. Identity, politics, whatever it might be. And there's a valuable place for picking apart falsehood. After all, Luke here skewers the, the pretensions of, of those who claim to be opposing the church in the interest of the truth, when in fact it's hypocrisy and jealousy. But, but that's not the primary motivation for the church here. It's not what keeps them going, that they can see through the, the, the wickedness of, of these men. It is, I guess, the case that they didn't know at the time about the conversation that Gamaliel had with the Sanhedrin behind closed doors. They don't know what's motivating these men in their hearts, but they do know what God has told them to do. And in their case, it is crystal clear. As they're released from prison, the angel once again tells them in verse 20 what to do. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, Jesus. What are we to do? What God told us to do. We don't need to to game plan every possible scenario in which the government may tell us to do something against the will of Christ. Instead, let's search out what God would have us do. And be so committed to doing that, that, that we can say with the apostles, I must obey God and not men. I have no idea where you or I will find ourselves under pressure in the years to come. I can know what God would have me do. What does God want? He wants to declare the truth as his witnesses. The authorities care about themselves. The apostles care about obeying God. The authorities care about protecting their own position. The apostles care about declaring, witnessing to the truth. Again and again, that is what they do. Go and speak, and they do. They fill the the city, not not with food banks or or, or miracles, but, say the council, with their teaching. 
in front of the council, they must speak. And at the end of the passage, at the very end of the chapter, we, we leave them, yes, beaten, but in verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Here is the fundamental challenge and mission of the church. The mission of the church in this age is to proclaim Jesus Christ to those who are lost and to build up those who are his, to teach and preach the truth. The mission which we are all called to be part of, not, not to expose the, the falsehoods of those around us, but, but to preach Christ. The church is the servant of the gospel, message bearers, witnesses. The, the, the council can't even see the truth as a, as a matter. Even Gamaliel, who, who speaks something of, of a question of is this true or not, can only see the truth as something off in the, the future to, to be found out and discovered. But for the apostles in the church, the, the truth is something in the past that's already happened and to which they witness. We're not on a journey to find out the truth. We're on a journey to declare the truth that's already happened. Jesus has already died, he has already risen, he has already enthroned, and yes, in the future he will come again, but, but even that is certain on the basis of what he's already said and done. The church is a witness to something, not an investigator to find it out. We are to witness to the truth already established. Let me leave you with, with, with one final thought then. Here we had these two pen portraits of, of two groups that have headed into a kind of head-to-head clash. These powerful, at least outwardly, men, unconcerned with the truth, pragmatic, concerned with themselves. Their one aim is to maintain their own power and to stop the church with all the power of the Jewish religious and secular system behind them of their time. How effective are they? They they can't even keep some penniless preachers locked in a prison. They absolutely can't stop them preaching. They bend all of their efforts to just shut them up, and they fail miserably. In the end... Do they maintain their own power? No. No, they don't. That they maintain nothing of what they hope. And the, 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 the more they think they've won, the more they've lost. Great, we've scattered the church from Jerusalem. And now this is the problem across the Mediterranean. We've made it worse by trying to make it better. They can achieve nothing of what they hope to achieve. Here is the church. They have, it seems, beyond what they've been told, no grand vision or plan. They have no apparent concern for their own safety. No ten-step program to become the most influential organization in Jerusalem. They have one simple aim. To witness to Jesus Christ. To speak publicly of him and nothing almost comically nothing can stop them 
You put them in prison, and the next day, you open the doors, and they're not there. And then someone runs in and says, they're back in the temple preaching. You command them in open council to be quiet, and then beat them, and ten minutes later, they're outside preaching. Nothing can stop them. And as ridiculous as you try to make them look, despite the fact that just weeks, weeks before, people had stood at the foot of the cross of Jesus and spat on him and insulted him, now more and more are accepting this message and putting their trust in him. It's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. They, they just can't not win. Why? Because they obey God and not men. Two, two pictures, one not very, not very edifying of people opposed to Jesus. One of people who just get on with doing what they're told. And what is the outcome? The outcome is that, that God's purposes will not be frustrated. The gates of hell will, will not will not stop the expansion of his church. Jesus will build his church. He will be victorious. You can only preach Christ crucified and risen. You don't need to work out the truth. You just need to say what has already happened. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Father, thank you that you've given us such a glorious gospel to proclaim. That that intellectually speaking, it it is unquestionable. That in practical terms, your church is an adornment of that gospel. That it is beautiful and and a witness to the truth and that any who, who see it would glorify you of us. And yet we know that 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 will not be the response of, of some, or even many. Help us then to persevere. Would we be so consumed with the one task you've given us of proclaiming Christ, that we would go on regardless of the opposition? We know your blessing in that. Would you encourage us in, in the, the large and, and visible political failures, but also in the, in the personal disappointments as we share the good news of Christ with, with someone and, and they're uninterested and indifferent? Would we, like the apostles, go on proclaiming, even in the face of apparent failure or setback, trusting that the gospel will be victorious as you have promised in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.